He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Tēnā koutou katoa and welcome to Insight. I'm Philippa Tolley. This week, Taranaki and New Zealand's energy future. Taranaki is wrestling to find a new course after the government's decision to end new offshore oil and gas exploration. Workers who once earned six-figure salaries are now coping with a reality that's very different. But not everyone is despondent and some are looking to alternative energy sources as the future for the province and New Zealand. So what could New Zealand's energy mix look like in 2050? And is it possible for Taranaki and its people to have an equally bright future tied to a new set of clean energy sources? Gary Amundsen understands the highs and lows of the oil and gas industry all too well. A qualified geologist, he was a so-called mud logger who analysed the content of drilling muds before losing his job when the oil price went south. I was working for an Australian branch of, of an international corporation after the New Zealand branch had shut down because of the um, slowdown of work. Um, I was made redundant. I spent six months desperately looking for work, um, but because 90% of the, the people in my profession worldwide were doing the same thing, there was none. Um, after six, six, seven months, I found work at a meatworks down in Hara. It was good. Um, it wasn't anywhere near what I was used to, or, you know, uh, quite different. And since then I've um, found a job as a security guard for Armour Guard. So I worked four nights on, four nights off, 12-hour shifts, a minimum wage. That's a far cry from the conditions the 49-year-old used to enjoy. Most people in the industry have at least a bachelor's degree. Of, so I went to Victoria University, got a Bachelor of Science, Geology. I also got a bachelor's classics and I went off to become a high school teacher. Didn't like it, so followed geology into um, this job. Uh, oil fields are really inflated prices. Um, I was making about 110, 120k a year for only working 180 days. But the, the stewards out there, the people who made your bed, they started on 100k on the offshore rigs. The Stratford father of two says the transition to a minimum wage has been hard on his family, but others have had it even worse. Well, I went from having about 100000 a year income to being unemployed, and that was a big culture shock for the kids. I was very fortunate in that I've managed to find work in the meatworks. A couple of friends from the um, oil industry lost their houses. Mr Amundsen says in the current environment his chances of finding work in the New Zealand oil and gas sector are virtually zero. Overseas or in some other um, geology, I have, there's a good possibility. Good, as in at least 50%. In Taranaki, no. What, why would anybody bother in drilling for it in Taranaki now? The, the government has indicated it's hostile to oil and gas. And it's not only individuals reeling from the government's decision. We're a drainage and transport company. About 60% of what we do is gas-related in one way, shape or form, either directly or the flow-on effects of people who work in that industry who therefore build houses and get stuff transported, all that sort of carry-on, really. Yeah, uh, we've got 12 trucks, various configurations, four cranes. Phil Darth, the co-owner of Haura firm Agtrans, says the prospects for his company are uncertain. 
confidence levels out there high, like this sort of stuff is you know, a million bucks a pop, a million and a half. So to invest in this sort of gear that we run to do the jobs we do, you've got to have confidence that it's going to have work going forward, otherwise you're putting a lot of capital at risk and and yeah, this decision yeah, doesn't give me any confidence at all. You start to wonder, you know, what's down the track, will we have any work or will we will 60% of our staff and 60% of our gear be redundant and not have work? And in which case is it still viable to continue? His solution is straightforward. I would like to think in the interests of not only us but the rest of the country and our energy security that the decision does get reversed. I think we've started down a road where pretty soon we're going to get to the point of beyond no return and with a lack of viable alternative that will fulfil the gap, may fulfil some of the energy gap we have, but not all of it, you know, with gas coming out of the market, that we will then be stuck with importing product from overseas. Taranaki is the only oil and gas producing region in New Zealand and more than 20 fields, both on and offshore, are currently in production. According to the development agency Venture Taranaki, the sector generates 11,000 jobs nationally and 7,000 in the region itself. More than 4,300 of those jobs are directly employed in the sector in Taranaki. But many of those jobs appeared on shaky ground when the Prime Minister took to the rostrum in the parliamentary press briefing room in April last year. Today we are announcing that the government will end new offshore oil exploration permits in New Zealand. Onshore blocks will continue in Taranaki for the next three years, at which time we will reassess. Climate change has been described by the Prime Minister as her generation's nuclear-free moment, and she said the decision to halt new exploration permits was part of her government's plan to transition towards a carbon-neutral economy by 2050. But that announcement sent leaders in Taranaki into a tailspin. The chair of the Taranaki Mayoral Forum, Neil Holdham, described the move as a kick in the guts for the region's economy. Mr Holdham reminded anyone who would listen that it was Taranaki gas that kept the lights on around the country and he demanded to see a detailed plan of how the region would be supported in the transition to a carbon-neutral economy. Let's not muck around. I'd like to welcome the Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Jacinda Ardern. This month at a glitzy Just Transition Summit in New Plymouth, which featured Hollywood A-listers and Australian rock royalty, Ms Ardern delivered the latest instalment in that support. Today... I'm announcing that the government, as part of the wellbeing budget 2019, will set up a new clean energy centre here in Taranaki to help lead New Zealand's transition to a low carbon future. Ms Ardern later told media the $27 million National New Energy Development Centre would employ 45 people and help to commercialise new energy technologies. The goal has to be how do we turn those oil and gas jobs into jobs in hydrogen, you know, jobs in wind energy, jobs in tidal. Uh, and so what we're doing here is trying to commercialise some of those new opportunities and make sure we keep those high-wage jobs. But many are sceptical of the new direction, not least and not unsurprisingly the oil and gas lobby group, the Petroleum Exploration and Production Association of New Zealand, or PEPANS. It commissioned a New Zealand Institute of Economic Research report which found it could cost the Taranaki economy $40 billion by 2050. The report predicted household incomes in Taranaki would drop by $21,000 and the region would shed up to 6% of its jobs, many of them highly skilled. Pepan's chief executive Cameron Madrick, who attended the summit as a delegate, supported the Clean Energy Centre initiative. 
Oh, it's good to see um, you know some funding come into the province. Um, it's obviously a relatively small amount compared to the contribution of the of natural gas to to the province and to New Zealand. But yeah, good start, good to see. But there was a caveat. Yeah, well, we'd like to see the um, the new energy centre look at you know the uses of natural gas. Uh, that can be lower emissions because, of course, there are 400,000 New Zealanders who rely on that fuel. Despite his reservations about the ban, New Plymouth Mayor Neil Holdham also thought the centre was a good first step. Oh, look, I think it's a really good start. Um, you know, we've never seen this level of um, government presence in Taranaki in one place and one time in our history. Um, they've, they've made a commitment to helping us drive this new energy future. Um, which is really going to see government partnering with the region, partnering with industry to find you know, a way through. So it's a really good start. The oil and gas sector contributes $1.5 billion to Tananaki's GDP and it makes up 40% of the regional economy. The province also boasts the second highest regional GDP per capita in the country of about $68,500. And away from the summit venue... It's clear Mr Holdham is still smarting from the decision to end offshore exploration. My view is that eventually we will go to a zero hydrocarbon economy, but that at the moment, you know, for instance, um, Fonterra has got coal-fired power plants in the North Island um, making milk powder. Now, if we converted every one of those to gas straight away, we could reduce our national emissions by 4 or 5%. So, so gas is cleaner than coal, so why not switch it out for now until we've got other things? My view is you set a price for carbon, which is the whole idea of an emission trading scheme, and then let industry innovate. Now, what the government has done is they've picked on a fuel, because it's, well, for whatever reasons they have, um, and then industry's going, well, what other winners are you going to pick? Because the idea is, if you say, right, the price of carbon is $100 a tonne, then businesses, some businesses will tip over tomorrow. They just won't be able to cope, and other businesses will change their practices and innovate. Um, but when you start picking individual winners, you distort that. So my view is, um, set a price for carbon, and then and then leave your options open and you'll choose the options that are the most efficient. Because the goal is to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and methane going into the atmosphere, um, not to be picking which industries and, and which fuel sources are going to work best. Mr Holdham says if it was his decision, he'd overturn the ban tomorrow. Not that he's expecting the government to. We need a high-value economy to solve this problem because, you know, we're not... We don't want to end up with high unemployment and high energy costs and low balance of payments. So we just have to work within the constraints that we've got um, and then try and solve the problems that, that you know, the whole world's trying to solve. I'm Robin Martin, and you're listening to an RNZ Insight programme on whether Taranaki can have a bright future on the back of new fuels, not oil and gas. In an effort to somehow harness the new technologies and get them to duplicate the financial boom times for Taranaki that oil and gas has provided, the region is now focusing on sectors seen as key in its future, including energy, tourism, the Māori economy and food and fibre. Justine Gilliland held the government-funded post of General Manager for Transitional Economy in New Plymouth and is now Chief Executive of Venture Taranaki. 
She says the Taranaki 2050 roadmap and its parallel hydrogen roadmap are about the province taking control of its own destiny. I think it's about thinking about um, the transition over 30 years. So this isn't about you know exactly what might happen tomorrow. This is about plotting a pathway for 30 years. And so we're going on a journey here. You know, nothing's going to shut down tomorrow. It's about how we make that transition over time. And there will be new forms of energy that we'll be able to invest in. And we've got amazing skills and depth in Taranaki that we can draw on to actually help New Zealand make that transition. One of those Taranaki businesses looking to expand into clean energy is engineering company EHL Group. It has a background in providing hydraulic systems to the transport and oil and gas sectors and has developed a first-of-its-kind device which generates electricity from wave power. Co-owner Peter Jannings and lead designer Derek Schottbolt took me to look at a development model. So this over here is our lay-down for the heavy machinery here. And this is where we've got our um, wave device that we had in the water in Akaroa and... Yeah, that's, this one's been out at Akaroa and Moa Point. Yep. Had two deployments. This one, this is New Zealand, the New Zealand device. So this New Zealand device has only been deployed in New Zealand and then there was another device that we deployed in Hawaii. Mr Shotbolt explains how the prototype works. We have a, a big active float in the middle, um, which is the part that goes up and down. And just at the back there, uh, we've got uh, the hull, which bolts on to the power pod, and, and all the hull sections are actually underwater. And we make power from the rotational moment from the, from the hull and the float. So, so what happens is the float moves at a different frequency than the hull and because it takes a different frequency it can actually we can extract power from that change of, of rotational motion. Mr Jennings says the company is ready to test a full-sized 15 metre high device in Hawaii and has applied for six million dollars from the Provincial Growth Fund to help it do so. He reckons wave power has the potential to create a lot of jobs for people in Taranaki. We have the skilled staff here now that are working in the petrochemical industry, the um, contracting businesses that are the engineering, the consultancy companies, the electrical design companies, they're all here based in Taranaki. So those companies can all play a big part in, um, in developing this product. You know, we have a cable um, manufacturer here. We have you know, consultancy companies, we have engineering companies that all could create quite a few jobs for the region. Another emerging energy source is hydrogen. And it was the big topic at a gathering in Rotorua of world energy leaders. Vice Chair of the Energy Leaders Group and Unitech's Associate Professor of Engineering, Jonathan Lever, explains the benefits of the fuel. So we get hydrogen power by splitting water is the, is the easiest way to do it. You can also uh, get hydrogen um, other ways uh, through uh, dissociation of uh, natural gas, but um, uh, the typical way is to use electricity to split water, and then you have, if your electricity comes from renewable sources, you have zero emission in producing the hydrogen. And the big advantage of, of, that, of that hydrogen is that 
you can uh, then store the hydrogen and you can either use it directly for heating um, or you can use it to power a, a vehicle and a typical hydrogen vehicle is an electric vehicle that you can refuel in five minutes. It'll travel 600 kilometres, um, so it has the same characteristics as a conventional vehicle. Dr Lever says hydrogen is starting to make real gains. We're really at a crucial time in the history of hydrogen. Uh, 2019 is the year where we're seeing exponential growth uh, in the interest in hydrogen. We've seen a lot of interest in battery technologies, for instance, in the light vehicle fleet, and that is going to growth, and that is uh, is going to continue. Uh, but certainly, as far as heavy industry goes, uh, we're talking about industrial use, uh, heavy vehicle, uh, where you need high energy density, um, and you need uh, a lot of uh, onboard capacity to, for instance, drive trucks long distances, and also for replacement of fossil fuels in industry, then hydrogen has a place. And he's keen to allay any safety fears people have about hydrogen. In the year 2000 I saw experiments where bullets were fired into, into tanks of hydrogen being heated in LPG flames. So I'd like to give the general public the reassurance that hydrogen is not a, any more dangerous than CNG or LPG and that the international standards are well capable of keeping uh, the public safe. A New Plymouth couple, Andrew and Cathy Clennant, are at the leading edge of commercialising hydrogen energy in New Zealand. Co-founders of Haringa Energy, which is run from their suburban home, they received $950,000 from the Provincial Growth Fund to develop a hydrogen roadmap for Taranaki and build some prototype fuel stations. Andrew Clennant went to Rotorua to tell energy leaders about his plans to create a network of plants making hydrogen from renewable electricity sources that would be a link to heavy transport and industry. It's when we build the system that it becomes a much wider application. So I think there were some comments today as well saying as we grow scale, it will be able to go in so many more places. If we only think of it as niche, it will never get to those places. So what we're looking at doing, we've, we've reversed, for example, um, there was a push in Germany to build, over several years, to build retail fueling stations for light vehicles. But it's not light vehicles that's the big driver for hydrogen in transport, it's in heavy transport. So instead, what we're doing is focusing on where can we grow the market where it's got the strongest use, and that's in heavy transport hubs. Mr Clement says the employment prospects from hydrogen in Taranaki are considerable. Certainly, if we look at um, if we look at what we're doing with hydrogen, which is a, is a gas, uh, so the, the first place to start is that uh, we need gas skills to manage gas. It's a hazardous gas. We need to manage that. It can be managed. It's being managed all over the world, but we need to apply the right skills for that. So, rather than a retraining, it's about a upskilling to to just have the the hydrogen version of that. So there's the first place, and we can see that right through the energy sector of of folks that are involved in facilities engineering. Through to construction and maintenance. But that, however, pales by comparison to the Pohokai New Zealand proposal from US venture capitalist Eight Rivers. It wants to build a $3.5 billion plant in Taranaki making hydrogen from gas with byproducts of ammonia urea fertiliser and electricity. The project would employ carbon capture technology and look to store the carbon underground, most likely in old oil and gas wells. Speaking over Skype from North Carolina, Eight Rivers representative Cam Hosey 
says if approved, the project would create thousands of jobs. So there's really three stages to the project from here. Uh, there is the development stage, or what we call development, uh, which is really when you're doing the particular design for a site, you're doing the contracting for the, the gas supply and the offtakes and the permitting and all those type of things. Uh, that will probably take about two to two and a half years or so. Um, it'll directly employ about 20 to 30 people during that stage um, with an indirect uh, job uh, creation of around about four or five times that number. Uh, we're going to be spending on the order of um, well north of $50 million in that two and a half years during the development stage, a lot of engineering, et cetera. Uh, we'd then be aiming to start construction towards the end of 2021. Poakai is waiting to hear back about its own application to the Provincial Growth Fund for feasibility funding for its project. Clean energy is not all about Taranaki, of course. Hydro contributes about 55% of electricity generation and geothermal 15%, a share that is expected to grow. The Waireki Resort, just outside Taupo, uses geothermal energy for heating. It's probably our biggest plant room, so it's not that loud. The maintenance manager, William Halligan, swears by it. So what we got here, Robin, is we use uh, steam, courtesy of Contact Energy, and we bring it in through, obviously, lines. And this unit right here is what we call a heat exchanger. And just on the other side of that is cold water. And we use the steam through the heat exchanger to heat up all the water, which we use for heating all the rooms, heating pretty much three-quarters of the hotel. Mr Halligan says it's a cheap, renewable energy source which fits the resort's green energy strategy. The Chief Generation and Development Officer at Contact Energy, James Kilty, says there's more where that came from. Of the electricity mix, uh, geothermal is about 17-18% uh, and growing. Uh, the, geothermal has a huge and important um, future in New Zealand uh, in two ways. One is as a low-carbon, renewable, baseload form of electricity production. It can replace fossil fuel electricity over time. And the other is as a direct heat source for industrial process. So uh, there are existing uses in and around, and we at Contact support those in and around our facilities. And we're getting a lot of interest from overseas and, and locally of people thinking about moving facilities closer to a renewable fuel source. About 82% of New Zealand's electricity generation comes from renewable energy sources. Wind generation is expected to grow rapidly from its current 5%. Solar, biomass and wave power are also in the mix. The 18% shortfall is made up of coal, oil and gas generation. But renewables only account for 40% of total energy use. Mr Kilty sees electrification as the way forward to a carbon neutral future. I think it will look quite different to today. Um, I believe we'll see a lot more distributed energy. Um, we'll have built out a significant number of, uh, of, more, of new renewable power stations and so more wind farms and more geothermal plant to support the electrification of the nation. With such a low carbon electricity sector, electricity is the solution. The more people who electrify their vehicle fleets, the more people who electrify uh, their uh, industrial processes, the better from a carbon perspective uh, for this country. And I think to support that we'll have to see a build out of more renewable resources and some support from a more distributed set of uh, energy sources like solar PV and the likes.
Mr Kilty believes renewables will account for 95% of electricity generation in about 15 years' time. But he says there will still be a gap when the sun doesn't shine, the wind doesn't blow and the hydro lakes are too low, and therefore a role for thermal generation, in other words, gas and coal. Austrian oil and gas giant OMV, which recently bought Shell's New Zealand assets for about $850 million, certainly thinks there's a future for gas in New Zealand. OMV is investing a further $500 million to breathe new life into the Pohokura and Maui gas fields in Taranaki. Wells and drilling manager Owen Hay explains the work the China Oilfield Services operated Jackup Rig was recently doing at the Pohokura platform. Yeah, so once the, the, the rig is jacked up beside the Pohokura platform, the, um, the actual tower bit at the back, that will jack over the top of Pohokura to give us access. And we'll have generally over 100 people offshore working, uh, and they will manage all of the equipment and the facilities that we need to do the well uh, entry uh, work. And what exactly are they doing? It's a three-month programme. What are they doing over those three months? Yeah, so we're basically focusing on a number of the wells on the platform. Uh, they're mature wells, and we basically need to isolate some water production that's come in over time and open up new zones for production. Back at the Just Transition Summit in New Plymouth, the Minister of Energy and Resources, Megan Woods, isn't shying away from the fact that gas is still in the mix. We know that gas is going to have a role to play. The targets that we have sent, 100% renewable electricity in a normal hydrological year, um, contains a very important caveat that is in a normal hydrological year, that we say that we will be using thermal peaking, and that means gas, for a period of time. And we, we know that the industry, um, the permits that are there, can, can go on for two, three, possibly four decades. Um, so this is long term, it's managed, but this is a transition. And one of the things that I've been really pleased with over the last couple of days is the idea that people um, are starting to get to grips with the fact that a transition isn't just the maintenance of the status quo forever. That a transition is just that. It involves change, but as a government we're committed to making sure that's deliberate and managed change. Ms Wood's message to workers currently employed in the sector is not to panic. This is a long-term transition, that nothing's going to change overnight. Um, and we've seen that um, firm up very much over the last 13 months since we made the announcement that we've seen OMV is invested in the area and that there's been a lot of signals that um, there's going to be continued investment. And for at least the next you know, two, three decades, um, that people will continue in the jobs that they have. So for most people who are working in the industry at the moment, they'll finish their careers working in the industry. And that goes with a lot of the allies workforce as well. Ms Woods said the oil and gas sector had already shed hundreds of jobs prior to the government's decision to end offshore exploration. She says there's relief in Taranaki now that an alternative economic strategy is being planned so that there are good paying jobs in the future. Gary Umminson fears that that's come too late for him. Like most people, I had an identity built around what I did. I was a geologist, but um, then you're unemployed and unemployed is not really a great um, persona to have, you know, and many parts of society make you feel like a failure if you're unemployed. That programme was written and presented by RNZ's Taranaki reporter Robin Martin. Next week on Insight, Phil Pennington investigates who should be keeping New Zealanders safe from extremists. I'm Philippa Tolley, and that's all from Insight for today. Lovely to have you with us. Kakite Anu.